Please remain standing, if you would, as I read Exodus chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man his neighbor and every woman her, of her neighbor for silver and gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of his people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, you couldn't tell this, but the same man who sang to you, uh, you are good, you are good when there's nothing good in me, and the same man who sang about the resurrection lost his uncle yesterday morning, um, his uncle that he's really close with. And so if you will just join me in prayer for Moy and for the Pinas as we pray for uncle, uh, for their, for their loss, um, uh, losing uncle Nelson. And, uh, if you can, uh, after the services come around him, give him a big hug, him and Mariana. If you see Omar running around, give him a hug as well. Um, so let's just pray for them right now. If you don't mind, Father God, we do behold a wondrous mystery. Slain by death, the God of life now reigns on high, resurrected forever. Lord, solidifying our resurrection. So, Father, right now in the midst of loss, in the midst of hurt, God, we grieve with a part of our body that grieves, and we mourn with a member who mourns. And so, Father, it is one family in our congregation, yet it is our whole family that hurts. So, God, I pray, Lord, that you help speak to us the great gospel of resurrection in Jesus Christ. Lord, Uncle Nelson is not really dead. His body sleeps in the ground and his spirit is forever alive with you. And, Father, we long for the day that he will be resurrected and will dance and sing in the new heaven and new earth under the throne of Christ. And that we ourselves will be set free from pain and fear and tears and death. And God, you will be glorified forever. So, Father, now as we open up to the Passover, I pray, Lord, that you help us to see that it is in the midst of death that your gospel is even proven more real. So, Father, we humble our hearts now before you. We ask for comfort and peace upon our friends and family. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Throughout the Bible, we find one great tension that must be resolved. The tension comes specifically because of three undeniable truths throughout all of Scripture. You see them throughout all the pages of the Bible, and without a doubt, they are there. Number one, God is absolutely holy. Number two, man is completely sinful. And number three, God has promised gracious forgiveness. First, 
God has unapologetically revealed himself to be a holy and just God. He says things about himself like the Lord, the Lord, a God who will by no means clear the guilty. That's Exodus 34, verse 7. Or how about Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 17? For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. God's saying that he sees every little wrongdoing, every oppression, every molestation, every iniquity, every porn watch, every little iniquity. God's eyes are on and he sees it. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2. God is called a just and jealous and avenging God. You'd be hard pressed to find any book in the Bible that does not declare God to be unmitigatingly holy and just. Justice in its pure perfection. But then there's the second truth. Man is described throughout the Bible as thoroughly wicked and depraved. There is no one good. No, not one. We have all gone astray. You hear things like that in Romans 3. It goes on to call us wicked, worthless, unrighteous, dead, poisonous, ruined. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Jeremiah 17 describes our heart. Which says. Uh, the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can trust it. Genesis 9. For the intention of man's heart. From their youth. Is on evil only. My friends. The Bible does not give you a better self esteem. The Bible does not give you a better self image. The Bible proves the the undeniable truth that we are sinful people who have rebelled against a holy, perfect, just God. And yet, here comes the third confusing truth. God promises gracious salvation and forgiveness for sinners like us. The same God who declared that He is the Lord, the Lord, who will, be, who will by no means clear the guilty, also says that He is a God merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Daniel prayed about his people's own sin, and he says, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. And so you get these three truths that do not negate each other. God is holy, man is sinful, God will forgive. And they stand side by side without without making each other disappear, they accept, they expect you to take all three of these truths in perfect unity. And so we have a threefold conundrum. How in the world can God be perfectly just and judge every single sin? How in the world can we as sinners receive the forgiveness and grace of God? You see, this is, this is a tension that if it's not solved, the Bible falls apart. It's not just the Bible that falls apart without this tension. God himself falls apart. If we cannot figure out how this tension is resolved, how can a holy and just God dwell with sinners like us and give us forgiveness while at the same time judging sin? If we can't figure out that tension, the gospel is absolutely pointless. So, let's ask the question. How can God be holy, just, Man be sinful and depraved, and yet God still give them forgiveness. My friends, this is the important doctrine that most churches have walked away from this day. It's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It is the fact that God in His great wisdom, in His great plan, pours out holy justice on the substitute sacrifice so that we can be set free from justice and from the judgment of our sins is because he has provided a lamb, innocent, perfect, without blemish, who receives punishment for us so that we can receive the forgiveness and grace of God. It's substitutionary atonement, the fact that one has died in my place so that I might live. It's the fact that he who knew no sin became sin for me so that I might become righteousness of God. It's the fact that he stood in my place. 
He drank my cup that had God's wrath in it for my sin so that I might drink of the sweetness of His blessing, of His reconciliation, of His peace. So I might take part in His resurrection. My friends, the whole Bible hinges on this one truth. Only those who trust in the, in the saving sacrifice of God will escape the justice of God. Only those who trust in the sacrifice that God provides will escape His wrath. There is nothing in you. There is nothing about you. There's nothing you can do to escape God's holy wrath. You stand under it. It is heavy. It is hot. And it falls heavy on sin. And therefore, we need a sacrifice. And to picture this great sacrifice, we come to Exodus chapter 11 and 12 with the image of a Passover lamb. Exodus 11, if you've been tracking with us, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so we're in Exodus 11 now. And you, if you were here last week, you know there have been nine other plagues that God has dished out on Egypt. And these nine other plagues fall as hammer strokes against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians, constantly proving that God is sovereign. There is no one like the Lord our God, constantly emphasizing that there is no one equal to Him. The gods of Egypt fall before Him. His finger moves and the Egyptian priests can't stand anymore. That's God. And now we come to Exodus 11 where there's a, a sense of finality. Everything has been leading up to this one point. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Now, this is a drastic change from who Pharaoh had been in the first place. He had been reluctant. He had been slow. He had been hardened. He wouldn't let them go. He grasped them and clinged to them as if they were his possession. And God promises that after this final plague, he's not just going to let them go. He's going to drive them out. In, in, in a very rude and kind of gross analogy, this is going to be the gut punch that makes Pharaoh vomit out the Israelites. There's nothing he's going to be able to do. It's going to be smelly, it's going to be stinky, it's going to be ugly, but it's going to be definitive. And in the end, God will be the victor. No longer will Pharaoh reject, negotiate, debate, or wrangle with God. In the end, by the end of this tenth plague, God alone will be seen as God victorious. The battle of the gods ends here. In preparation for the exodus, God gets so cocky, if God can be cocky, God gets so cocky that he tells his people to go to their neighbors and to ask for their silver and gold. I just I can't imagine what this must have been like. Hey, I know my God just destroyed all your cattle and has just threatened your firstborn, but can I have that necklace? <laughs> but it all goes back to this promise, all the way back to Genesis 15:4, when God promised Abraham and his offspring that they would be slaves and servants in a land not their own for 400 years, and that God would bring them out. And when he brought them out, he would send them out with great possession. So it's this promise that he's bringing to fruition when he tells them to go and ask for gold and silver. And as awkward as the command is, though, God gives them exactly what he commands them to do. He gives them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Sure, you nasty Israelites who have plagued my country can have my family heirlooms. God gives them favor. God, and, and, they, and the craziness of our sovereign God is that He makes them willingly give up their possessions. They're not stolen from them. They hand them over. So why do we have all this description? I, I've always wondered this. Like, why the description of, why is it so important that the Egyptians hand over their wealth? That seems to me kind of a rabbit trail off the story, does it not? It's like, let's, let's get on to the deliverance. Let's get on to the, to the fun stuff, right? So why all this description? Here's what I think you'll find. Throughout Scripture, you find a great reversal anytime God redeems. A great reversal. If you want an example of it, um, you, can, you can look anywhere between Samuel's mother, Hannah, 
uh, Mary, you can look at it in David and Saul, but it's basically when God takes those who are high and exalted and arrogant and brings them low and takes the humble and lowly and exalts them up. That's the great reversal of redemption. Hannah prays this in her, in, uh, about God's redemptive work. And if you ever want a fun study, go to Hannah's prayer and just track all the Exodus themes that you hear there. Here's what she says. The bows of the mighty are broken and the feeble bind on strength. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. This is what the plundering of the Egyptians does. The mighty, wealthy, powerful nation of Egypt is brought low. And the humble, poor slaves of Israel are brought high. They plunder the mighty. They plunder the strong. The promise of plundering shows again and again and again that God can use the weak things of the world to confound the strong. Slaves plundering masters. The reversal seen even further at the end of verse 3 where it says this, Moreover, the man Moses was very great, or you could put strong or powerful or mighty in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. The description could not be more ironic, could it? What did Moses say about himself when God called him into Egypt? God, I, I stutter. I mean, this is, this is a stammering Moses. This is the 80 year old shepherd. This is this sun baked, skin cracked Midianite shepherd who's, who's been in the desert for the last 40 years. And yet, Who is it that all the Egyptians look to and say, this man is a mighty man? We're not talking like Samson, like beefed up beefcake here. We're talking about frail, fragile, elderly, old man that all the Egyptians see walking down the street and everybody just moves to the corners. Make way, Moses is coming. said it once and I'll say it again. God doesn't humble kings with kings. God humbles kings with pawns. God can checkmate a king with his pawns. He doesn't need his queens. He doesn't need his rooks. He doesn't need his bishops. He can use it with that little worthless piece that if you lose, you just replace it with a checker. You know, one of those, you know, it's just an unimportant piece, isn't it? And yet in the end, everybody knows That God is God and God is the one who did it, not Moses. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. So as we read through this, we see that God defeats this mighty, mighty nation. Not with armies, not with battalions, not with conquerings, not conquering soldiers, not with conquistadors, not with these, these invading armies, but with a humble shepherd. And this should be uh, notable for us. We should be listening carefully to this because God does not humble the enemies of God and the enemies of God people. God does not humble sin and Satan in the world through a mighty conquering king, but through a crucified savior. A dying Jew on the cross. So that all the world looks at this and is appalled and says, that's how God did it? Because God chooses the weak of the world to shame the strong. God chooses the foolish to confound the wise. This is God's redemptive work. Over and over and over again, as little children are raised up and mighty grand adults are brought down. If you read the newspaper and you're just, your heart just is crushed by what's happening in Venezuela and, and you know that our society needs reform, just wait. God is the Redeemer. And when redemption happens, Those who are mighty, those who are self-arrogant, those who make themselves great, those who claim that they are the end all of all governments, those people are the ones that are brought down low and God exalts the lowly. 
every single time. It'll be a savior who has holes in his wrist and holes in his feet and a hole in his side that we will worship on the throne forever. Don't overlook the little details of Scripture. Having received God's word, Moses was then to speak to Pharaoh. In verses 4 through 6, Moses issued this warning. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. It's fair warning, Pharaoh. Fair warning. Your firstborn will die if you do not let the Hebrews go. Irrespective of social status, irrespective of their economic background, from Pharaoh down to the slave girl, every single person who stood under wrath of God would receive that wrath that night. Every single person would come to see that God is God as he delivers justice and judgment on their firstborn. And it would be such a massive outpour of justice that God even says that there uh, has never been a cry like they will have and there will never be a cry again. Now we're distant, way, way, we're thousands of years from this event. So it's hard for us to actually hear how looming this is. How big of a deal this is. We're actually talking about the sudden death of thousands, if not millions of lives in one single night. I mean, this is mass destruction. Now, to our modern stomachs, I think rightly so, we get a little nauseated when we hear about that, don't we? We get a little nauseated thinking like, this is, this is our God? Our God, Christians, our God, is the one who said in a single night there would be thousands who would lose their firstborn. How could God be so severe? Does anybody else ask that? Reading the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as he judges, like, how could God be so severe? How could he be so destructive? And the only right answer that we can have is God is holy and just. Not one Egyptian got what they did not deserve that night. Every single victim of God's justice receives not a lack of uh, not not a lack of justice, but complete pure justice poured out on them. Every single one. It should not be surprising to us that rebellion against the holy, perfect, righteous creator brings the bitterest of retributions. Bitter retribution. My friends, oftentimes we struggle with God's judgment because we fail to see just how pure and perfect God is. We tend to compare God with our bad parenting where we just kind of keep tolerating all things and let our kids grow up with these bad habits and these bad manners and these bad behaviors and we don't do anything about it. God's not a bad parent. God's a holy judge. He's the creator of all things. All things are his. Every single person was made in his image to image him and to glorify him. And therefore, as image bearers of God, when we sin and we rebel and we reject God, we are denouncing God's created purpose for us, proclaiming ourselves as king. Why would we not think God would judge? Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in the heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Moses continued, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So in this, God has promised to set Israel apart. He's not going to judge Israel alongside of Egypt. But on what basis is his distinction? I mean, we just said he's a just God, right? So is he going to set them apart because Israel has somehow done better than Egypt? Is he going to set them apart because Israel somehow has merited more and they're better off and they're higher class citizens? Well, no. 
If we listen to the Bible, what does the Bible say? For all have sins and fall short of the glory of God. What does Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is death. So if we were to ask the question, who deserved to die that night in Egypt? Everyone. Everyone. Including the Israelites. They were just as sinful then as everybody else in Egypt. God calls them, look how many times in Exodus God calls them obstinate, stiff-necked, stubborn. Isaiah chapter 48 verse 8, it says this, From your birth, Israel, you were called a rebel. So from the very beginning, they were rebellious. So to say that God's distinction was based on Israel's innocence or on their merit, or because they were somehow better people, is absolutely false. They deserve to be judged like everybody else because they were sinners. God-rejectors. God-haters. So you see the tension as we're reading this, right? Read your Bible slowly, and you begin to press out these tensions. Wait a second, God. How in the world are you going to justly show a distinction between Israel and Egypt? Justly show a distinction between sinners and sinners. How are you going to do that and be just and holy? Well, that's the tension that Exodus 12 is going to answer for us when it talks about a sacrifice of a lamb. It's not a distinction by merit. It's a distinction by mercy through a sacrifice. Nonetheless, before we jump in on that, Moses tells us that, tells Pharaoh that after this plague, the servants of Pharaoh would come and bow down before him and beg him to leave. The people would be saved. Pharaoh's power would be finally crushed and the great reversal would be made complete as the Egyptians bowed to Moses, not to Pharaoh. This weak and wounded shepherd is going to be at the helm, at the throne of Pharaoh, basically. And Moses left Pharaoh's presence in hot anger. Again, we have a subtle detail. Moses knew better than anyone else that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. God said to Moses, I will harden his heart. Knew better than anyone else. And yet he's angry at Pharaoh. Why? Because Moses knew that God, that though God was sovereign over the hardening, Pharaoh's still responsible for his sinful rejection. Pharaoh's still responsible for his sinful rejection. When we talk about hardening, especially in Exodus, I think what we see happening is what we see in Romans 1, where God talks about idolaters, those who have rejected him, those who have exchanged the glory of God for a lie. And what happens in Romans 1? Well, it says this, He gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. By hardening Pharaoh's heart, God was not forcing Pharaoh to do anything that Pharaoh was unwilling to do. God does not force anyone to sin. God does not force anyone to reject. God does not force anyone to rebel. But God is sovereign over their rebellion. How those two things work out, I have absolutely no idea. I've gotten three degrees trying to figure it out and still have no clue. So if you figure it out, I'd love for you to write it in an email. But my friends, here's what we've got to understand. Man is completely responsible. God is completely sovereign. And the fact that we don't know how those two things work out is a good thing because that means God is complicated and doesn't match to our simple human brains. If we can understand in the way that we can understand a toaster, then he must not be God. The fact that his ways are higher than our ways and the fact that he goes beyond leaves us just saying he's God. That's what Romans 9, Romans 9 cites Pharaoh's hard heart and rejection and says that God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh willfully sinning against God proves one thing. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. That's what it proves. Romans 9 doesn't solve the tension. It just simply says God's God. He's sovereign over man's rejection. He's sovereign over man's rebellion. He doesn't force them to do so. They're responsible for that. But God will not be hindered in his purposes by man's sin. Now, for careful Bible readers, it should be less surprising that a holy God would harden a sinful Pharaoh and more surprising that God would save his sinful people Israel. 
we often approach this text going, God hardened Pharaoh's heart? How dare he? Instead of asking the right question, God saved his stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate people? How could he? That's the right question. It's not so astonishing that God judges sinful people because they deserve that. It's astonishing that God saves sinful people because no one deserves that. My friends, don't get so wrapped up in God's justice. That's a given. We're sinful people, right? Is there anyone here that would stand up and say, I'm not a sinner and I've done nothing to deserve God's judgment? Well, I hope if you know yourself well that you wouldn't say, yes, that's me. So that God is just is just something that we should expect. But that he saves us. That he sets us apart. That he provides a sacrifice so that we can be saved from wrath. That's surprising. And that's where we should say, whoa, God. Look at what God has done. Now, moving into chapter 12. The tension has still not yet been solved, though. How can God distinguish his people? How will God pour out justice upon all Egypt and yet distinguish his people who, based on the fact of their own sinfulness, deserve to be judged as well? Well, God reserves the tension specifically in the Passover. I think when you look at Moses' instructions, you can see them broken up into two parts. First, he gives the immediate instructions that they're to carry out that very night. And second, he gives them instructions that they will remember forever a statute forever when you look at these details you find these very detailed instructions for how they're to sacrifice the passover lamb and you know what i think you should come to mind with i think you should be thinking of genesis 6 when god tells noah behold i'm sending a flood sends the warning just like he did in in exodus 11 and then he tells noah down to the cubit how to build the ark down to the cubit so these are instructions god's chosen method and means of salvation it's not for us to say i don't like that way of salvation we simply receive god's means of salvation by faith and obey him and trust him and follow him and that's what we see the people doing here listen carefully to the instructions i think you'll pick up on some of the themes that's trying to tell us god tells them when they are to choose a lamb and when they are to sacrifice it. A lamb was to be chosen on the 10th day of the first month. And it was to be sacrificed on the 14th day of the same month. Now, I don't know if you catch this, but God reinstitutes a whole new calendar for his people here. This month will be the first month of your Hebrew calendar. In other words, he's saying, this is going to be a new year. In other words, he's saying, when I work my redemption, it's a whole new beginning. When the Passover lamb is slain, Egypt is judged, God's people are set free. Behold, all things are made new. Does he not do the same thing in redemption for us? I mean, just look at it. Jesus died. Sin and Satan judged. And how many of us listening to our own testimonies can say, behold, he makes all things new. It's a new beginning. Next. The people are told what kind of lamb they are to sacrifice. It is to be specifically a lamb without blemish. I don't know how we can read that and not see that that is hinting at something to come. A lamb without blemish, a lamb without spot, a lamb without imperfection, a lamb without flaw. Only a perfect lamb would serve as propitiation. This is an important word for us as Christians to remember. It's gotten lost. It's been retranslated in many ways. But a perfect substitute lamb would be our propitiation, our stand-in substitute who would receive God's, God's wrath for us so that we could be saved. That's what this Passover lamb would do. Next, the people are told what to do with the lamb's blood and body once it was sacrificed. Very specifically, they're to take the blood and spread the blood over the two doors, the doorpost and the lintel. And that marks their house with the blood of the lamb. And then they're to eat the roasted flesh by night. The blood on the door would serve as a sign. Here's what he says. 
The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now pay attention. It's interesting. God says that it will be a sign for you. Not as it'll be. He doesn't say it will be a sign for me. He says it will be a sign for you. Why? Because God wants his people to know without a doubt that it is by the blood of this sacrificial lamb that he is passing over them. This sign is a sign for them. Moreover, when they go to eat the, the, the body of the lamb, the flesh, they're to eat in joy knowing that it is because of the death of another that they now can live in safety away from God's death, away from God's wrath. Everything about this sacrifice, everything from the way that they're to prepare it, from the way that they're to take the hyssop branches, dip it in the blood. It's a bloody event. I actually got to see something like this when I was a missionary um, in Asia. Um, the, the Muslims used to participate in a uh, sacrifice called Gorbah. And so many lambs and goats were slain that blood would just run the streets down the drainage. It's like you see these, you know, it's been raining in Texas a lot, right? And so you go to a gutter in the middle of the rain, it's just thick, right? Gushing. That's what it's like in some of these Muslim villages and little Muslim districts when they start sacrificing the Gorbon festivals. It, it's so thick that blood runs the streets. So everywhere they look, on the street, in the ditch, over the houses, on their hands, on their clothes, on the hyssop branches. Blood is everywhere. Why? To make one perfectly, th- one thing perfectly clear. Without the shed blood of a lamb, there is no remission of sin. My friends, we are modern people. And one of the greatest dangers of being modern people is we have a PG gospel. A Playmobil gospel that doesn't bleed, that doesn't suffer, that's not ugly. We have a gospel that's okay for everyone to and under. And the reality of the Bible is you have a bloody substitution that has taken your place. It is by the blood, by the death, and by the sacrifice of another that we are saved. Next, the people are told how to dress while they eat. Specifically, God tells them that they eat with their belts fastened, their sandals on, and staff in hand all night long. Why? Very simply, because it is the Lord's Passover. Even down to the way they dressed at this event, proclaimed faith in the Lord's deliverance. God had said that he would pass over them. God had said that he would deliver them from Egypt. Now they demonstrate that faith even by being ready to go. You'll be dressed, have your bags packed. To put it bluntly, a Hebrew in his PJs that night was a Hebrew displaying a lack of faith in God's promise. It's to be absolute, complete faith. No doubt. No extra special sacrifices. Sacrifice the lamb, spread the blood, eat the flesh, get ready to go. Very simple. God said what he would do, and now we trust him that he will do it. Finally, the people are told that they are to remember this Passover forever. We're going to deal with this more next week. We're going to look specifically at the feast that God commands them in Exodus to do forever, as a statute forever, to be a memorial day forever. They were to even keep the special feast of unleavened bread, remembering that God struck Egypt and they had to leave quickly what god does at this redemptive event he wants to make sure they will remember forever he doesn't want them to participate in it and move on he even tells them when you come to the land you will take this feast and you will teach your children why you do this feast god wants them to remember And it's as they're remembering, they look back to God's faithfulness in the past and they look forward in anticipation of God's redemption in the future. 
We're going to see just how that takes us to the Lord's Supper next week. And as a gracious, gracious event of timing, we're going to take the Lord's Supper next week after dealing with the Passover meal. And one of the things I hope you see by next week is that we are a Passover people still. It's because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the flesh that has been broken for us that we eat in remembrance of Him forever. As Moses faithfully delivered the message to the elders of Egypt, the people responded appropriately. They didn't say, really? We got to get our hands bloody? We got to do what? No, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. They bowed their heads and they worshipped. And they did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron to do. In Egypt that night, there was no other means of salvation. As you look down at the carcass of that lamb, you knew that that was your ticket out of Egypt. That was the means that God's death would pass over you. Those who listened, believed, and obeyed were spared the judgment. And those who didn't perished. The actual moment when death passed over the Israelites is described in incredible, astounding brevity. It just simply says it happened. Just like that is when God's judgment came. The death blow came at midnight, just as God's pro- God had promised. The firstborn of every Egyptian household died. This is just a heart-wrenching detail in the story. To wake up and your firstborn is dead. And every firstborn died. And they all cried out. This is intense moaning and mourning. Imagine all of Dallas. And in every household, somebody has died. And in every household... Somebody screaming and wailing at this intense justice that God has just shown. Does not move us. But this is how God defeated Egypt. God poured out justice. And only those who trusted in the Lamb were spared. Pharaoh brings Moses in. He says, up, go out from among my people. Both you and the people of Israel go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. Bless me also. Arrogant Pharaoh who's great and mighty now holding his firstborn broken. Look at the price of arrogance. Look at the price of rejection. Look at the price of rebellion. You harden your knees against God. He will break them. Be warned. And now great mighty uh, Pharaoh is broken, bows to Moses and pleads for blessing. God has reversed the world, turned the world upside down. The people hand over their treasures. Take them. Go. And Israel plundered the Egyptians. And then we have the amazing fact that as 600,000 men, that's not including women and children, are walking out of Egypt, we are told that they did not go alone. It says, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. What does this tell us? What does it tell us? God is the God of the nations. It wasn't just Israel who came up out of Egypt. There's a mixed multitude. There's crowds of people who have seen the work of God and they have mag- uh, they have been uh, uh, drawn to Yahweh, the powerful God who has just embarrassed the gods of Egypt and they're drawn and they're saved. My friends, our God is not a nationalistic God. He's the God of the nations. Our God likes mixed multitudes. Especially when those mixed multitudes come to His throne. Don't think politically. Think through the propitiation of the Lamb. Those Chinese communists we so often complain about. Those Russians. The Russians, Russian Reds. Those Dems. That we complain about. Those Republicans. Those Trump supporters. Those whoever it is. 
Who cares? Because by the blood of the Lamb, if they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they'll be just as near to the throne as you are. Because God is not a nationalistic God. He's the God of the nations. All tribes, all nations, all tongues. Singing, bowing, worshiping Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Our hearts should be moved by the peoples. Our hearts should be moved by the peoples, regardless of what. Have your opinions about national and and foreign policy. Have your opinions about who's doing right, who's doing wrong. Bring it to the Bible as much as possible. But know that those Chinese that we hate on so often If we hate them completely, you hate your own brothers and sisters. Those Mexicans who cross your border, and we just call them all worthless people. Jesus sees a people that he died for to redeem from captivity. Don't care which side of the political fence you you sit on. My friends, our God is saving a mixed multitude. And we will worship in Spanish and Chinese and English and Bulgarian and anything else that we don't like to speak. Because our God is a God who saves people. As an Exodus generation ourselves, we should be grateful for that. God has broken down the division between Jew and Gentile. Why? Because he's now reconciled two men into one man through one man. Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2. Black, white, rich, poor, yellow. It doesn't matter. Because by the blood of Jesus, if they believe in Jesus, that's the key. If they believe in Jesus, we are a mixed multitude to the glory of God. We should bask in the glory of a God who can save all people. They tell me not to get too political, but I just broke it anyway. All emails can go to brandon at gracechurchovilla.org. <laughs> brothers, because Uncle Nelson believed in Jesus that our Venezuelan brother is worshiping before the throne today. Through the Passover and Exodus, God provided a pattern through which we will understand his plan of redemption. He gives us vocabulary. We're able to speak things now and understand things because of the way he describes his his redemptive work. This Passover is a placeholder of things to come. Listen to this. Consistent with the Passover, the gospel assumes that we, you, deserve to die. Absolutely, unreservedly deserve to die because you're sinners. You, like the the Israelites, are not any more less deserving of death and judgment than anyone else. Consistent with the gospel. The, the gospel tells us that our salvation has come through the shed blood of a sacrificial lamb. Is it any mistake that in John one twenty nine, John the Baptist says, Behold the what? The Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. We're to live holy lives that repent of sin and rebellion and hatred. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. 1 Peter 1, 19. The beautiful stroke of poetry. Tells us that we have not been redeemed through silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christians, Ovillians, Midlothians, if you're from DeSoto, if you're from Lancaster, do you realize that you're no better than those around you? Do you realize that your socioeconomic status, your political views, the way you dress, how you live your life, what movies you choose to watch or not watch, does that make you any better in God's economy? The difference between you and them is only the blood of Christ. 
is only the blood of Christ. That's the distinction. In Egypt, it wasn't Israel in Egypt. It was those who had the blood of the lamb over the door and those who didn't. My friends, let us not be so arrogant to think that we are better people. We are not better people. We are dirty, rotten sinners who have been saved by a precious, holy, almighty, loving Christ. His blood ran red so that we could be redeemed. I watch the news and I see horrible people do horrific things. And before I can cast a stone, I must realize that I stand under the same judgment without Jesus. The worst criminal in the world is as bad as I. And the worst criminal in the world will receive the same amount of wrath if I do not put my faith in Jesus. My friends, we are people that have been blood-bought. That's your distinction as the people of God. That's your distinction. Let nothing else be your distinction. If you can put a t-shirt on with your favorite pop star, politician, or whatever, do not think that that marks you out as a person of God. Because unless you have faith in the slain lamb of God alone, you are not in the people of God. Put your faith in the lamb without blemish. Third, the gospel, the Passover is consistent with the gospel and that it sets us free from bondage. We realize that we were slaves. Jesus said in John 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We were spoken of as being in bondage to Satan. At the Passover, God brought judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And at the cross, he brought judgment on the prince of this world in John 12, 31. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Finally, the Passover, consistent with the gospel, speaks of the great reversal. My friends, there are some in here who are so arrogant to believe, prideful to believe that we can stand on our own two feet. That on the day of judgment, we'll be able to stand before God and point to our works, point to our acts, point to our income, whatever it else it was. Hardworking people who go to church. And those who stand on their own right will fall before the Lord. And those who stand in Jesus will stand forever. My friends, if God judges sin, who can stand? But because God has judged our sin in Jesus, we know we can. Jesus died on the cross, shedding his blood was buried and rose again so that you could live. That's the gospel. And you won't hear it on CNN and you won't hear it on Fox News. It's only in the scriptures. May we point our eyes in the right direction as Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain and has risen again. Let's pray. Father God, we trust you in your sovereignty. God, you have provided a Passover lamb. And you are good and mighty and gracious. So, Father, we stand here, Lord, as not as people who are uh, good in our own right. In fact, Father, there's nothing good in us. But you are good, even when there's nothing good in us. And because you are good, you have provided a sacrifice through which we must be saved. And there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.